Welcome to the Talking Story Podcast. We'll be your hosts for season one. I'm Lorenzo Roel Flores Please. I'm Ezra Kikaway Cook. And I'm Oceana Sawyer. In this space, as people of the global majority, we reflect on our experiences living here in Jefferson County, a semi-rural region of the Olympic Peninsula, which is primarily white folks. This is us talking to us about us for us. Welcome to the Land Back and Reparations episode. We're so excited about this episode because we have gathered three people in the area who are pretty seminal in these conversations around getting the land back to the people and what reparations really means. So for this episode, we talked to Jessica Lee, Naomi Don Krenke, and Chastity Sade. Jessica Lee is a Tlingit two-spirit femme with two lineages indigenous to Turtle Island as well as European ancestry. She was raised on Tlingit Ani and Denina territory, born into the Tongass rainforest of southeast Alaska, where a piece of her heart will always remain. She now resides in Kate or Port Townsend, with gratitude to the traditional people of the land, the Chimicum, Sklalem, Tuana, Makah, and more. She is growing roots and weaving dreams of a permanent home. While bed-bound from chronic illness in early 2019, she imagined the Jefferson County Anti-Racist Fund into being. JCARF is a grassroots community project providing white folks with an opportunity to enact reparations and mutual aid. And then we talked to their good friend, Naomi. And Naomi is a mixed tribal woman working on rematriating the lands of her ancestors and bringing back traditional ways. And finally, we talked to Chastity Sade. Chastity is a person of African descent. She's also a mother, a naturalist, earth tender, and mentor to youth. Connecting with her ancestral roots, supporting indigenous empowerment, and upholding social justice are all dear to her heart. She has lived in Chimicum, Washington for 12 years intent on cultivating the right relationship with the land and the people of the land. Welcome, Jessica, Naomi, and Chastity Sade. How did you come into a relationship with this land that you're on now? And how did that desire come out of your own personal history in the place that you grew up. My family's from Oklahoma. On my father's mother's side, we're descended from slaves, African-American slaves who were owned by the Chickasaw tribe. We currently have family land in Choctaw Territory. So we have mixed blood, and my family has always said that we were native. Even though people from Oklahoma and Arkansas, almost everyone that you meet will say that they're native, even though they're not necessarily cultured that way or they're not from the res. But the bloodlines are there. It's just, it's a subtle part of the culture there because it was Indian territory. Everybody living there was living on Indian territory. And so the cultures are mixed, I think, in a special way down there. So my awareness around that has been strong, though I recognize now as an adult how much I was blind to active, deep Native culture. I was blind to that. They didn't teach that in school. It was, of course, always a part of the past. But as a young person, I felt my sense of pride as an American (laughs) was marred because it was an injustice what this country did to the Native people. And so I never felt like I wanted to identify with that. How do we talk about reparations among us? Land back is really important. Or just having space within our community or our lands where our ancestors had lived. And not being able to afford land in our territories or where our villages were makes me really sad. 
I like to go to sites and sit there and imagine what it was like. Am I sitting where my ancestors sat? Am I walking the same beaches? Am I in their presence? And a lot of the areas are either owned privately or by the city. They're not accessible to me or other tribal people in this area. It's really important that there's spaces for us to go or be. And with real estate and the economy the way it is, or the way everything is set up, we can't afford that. We're not on the same playing field. We weren't given a even hand. So we're starting from the bottom and trying to get back everything. Our language, our songs, our spirituality, things we weren't allowed to practice. Keeping our children. So it's more than just land back. But that is a good place to start. Really with me, I'm more concerned with traditional village sites and land or traditional areas where my people would have lived. Because a lot of them were killed in these sites. Being Chimicum or Chibicubbed, there were multiple massacres against our people. And the sites, you can go there, but it's not feasible for me to own those lands. There's parks or privately owned, and that makes it really hard. I don't want to own the land, but if I wanted to have like a longhouse or plank house or a space there specifically for our people, it's not allowed, and I don't think that's right. I think that the parks and the county need to understand that that was a village site, and can we please have space in that park for my ancestors? That's very important to me. I don't know that it would ever happen in my lifetime. I'm hopeful, and I'm going to keep asking for it and putting it out to the community and the universe that I want to see a space specifically for my people in these areas. I'm going to keep going with that until I die, and hopefully my children will take that up because it's very important that we have these spaces available to us and not have to buy them back for millions of dollars or fight with the county over it. You know, they easily made that space a park. They can easily make space for the indigenous people they forcibly removed from areas here. It's been, what, 130 years around there, 100 years. Some laws were passed, like 1910, where we weren't allowed to rebuild. Indigenous people weren't allowed to build in Port Townsend. That was a law. You know, this is 1910. This isn't so far removed, and even if it was, it's still not okay. But we're talking about my grandparents' time. We're not talking about, you know, 500 years ago, and time doesn't really matter. This happened. We can make space, and we can do better. We know better, do better. My personal nature is to be connected with the land. The land has its own personhood, and it's not just something that you can just do whatever you want with and take. It's important for you to spend time with it and be respectful towards it. And Native cultures around the world, that's very high on the list of things that are, you know, important and the morals that they hold. It's very important to be in a good relationship with the land. And so I think that that is what's carried over to me. And moving here, it was just natural for me, wherever I ended up, to want to be in deep connection with the land. Mm. This place is also just extremely magical. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to not be taken away by the beauty of this land, the sea and the mountains and the trees and everything. But in coming here, I came here 12 years ago. And I'm so thankful because I've never been in the same spot for 12 years. Like I've never been anywhere that long and growing up. And every year that goes by, I get more and more connected to the place and I appreciate it more. I want to be connected to the spirits of this land, the water, the trees, the earth. I've come to really feel like that land is my teacher. Mm. And I've learned to hear the language of the land, the different elements that are there, the trees, the water, the earth, and the other different beings that are there. 
I will say that having been in that place, having the type of connection that I do for this number of years, it's actually helped me to connect to my own ancestry. And when I go back to Oklahoma and Arkansas, it's changed the way in which I relate to that place and my sense of belonging in that place as well. It's taken all these years. I feel like maybe three years ago was when I actually felt like, oh, I belong in this place. I belong here in Chimicum and I belong on this land and this land accepts me. Mm. You know, a, f- a couple years before that, I feel like I had this dawning on me of, oh, you need to ask permission to a place when you go there. This mm-hmm. is one of these things that I picked up on <laughs> just being in native culture. Ask permission. <laughs> ask permission. Are you welcome to be in this place? Give gifts. Make offerings. Mm. Um, be reciprocal. Don't just take. And I finally came to a point where I felt like, oh, yeah, it's okay for me to be here. I don't have to feel like I don't belong anywhere. I actually feel at home and grounded and at peace and stable there. I think that is the benefit of people being able to actually settle in a place and know that they're going to be there. It's been really beneficial for my children to just be in the same place and know that that's where they're going to be. I think that, yeah, there's a lot to be said about people who have to move around Mm -hmm. and who don't have a place. Or that place is so fraught with the pain of history that it feels like you're stuck there. Because my family owned 140 acres in a place at one time. Mm -hmm. And what's left of that, the people that are there are almost all heavily addicted and not doing well. You, with so much heart, described the agency that comes with choosing where you live versus accepting where they tell you to live. Most of us in black and brown bodies have been told where we can be. And to come to the present moment with, I choose this because this land and I have a relationship, it has called me and I'm here. That is powerful. That level of agency and sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's powerful for us. Mm-hmm. It was just funny. I haven't thought about that before, but I'm like, you know, it's the, it's really the water that has been the deepest connection for me on that land mm-hmm. where I am is the water. And that's, you know, why I felt like it's so important for the Chimicum people to have access to that land because these are artesian springs. Like, this is special, but it's the same for the sea or the rivers. People need to be around the water. It helps us to be well and to practice our culture. How do we talk about land back and reparations among ourselves when we as black and brown and indigenous people feel like, well, I don't know, that's kind of their shit, you know, I don't know if I, if I should be asking for that, that's theirs, you know, and I think that among us, we don't really understand. I mean, we've been colonized, right? Our brains have been colonized to think, you know, it's right. They earned it. They paid the money for it. They should have it as theirs, you know? And I, I can earn it. I can, you know, pay for it. And, and, and if I want it, it could be mine. That is colonizer thinking. So I love the way that you talk about it. Both of you guys talk about this like, Let's bring this back down out of colonizer thinking into the realm of what's actually happening. I mean, we are all just living beings on a living planet. And some of us have lived here, our people have lived here for centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our people need access to the land. They need access to the plants and the water and the animals for subsistence, these are things that 
we need and have a birthright of connection to. I really wish the, let's just say, the liberals of like Port Townsend cared as much about human animals' access to their habitat as they do the spotted owl or, you know, the mirrorlets. And don't get me wrong, I'm a birder, so I care about these things too. But I think we need to think about it in terms of, like I said, we're human animals and we need access to our habitat. And that's what I think about when I think about land back and reparations. I don't agree with these systems of power and control that we've created that say we need to have ownership over a land, we need to have a deed and a title. I don't care about that. But if this is the game we're playing, then black, brown, and indigenous people need to have access to those things so that they can enact their birthright of accessing that habitat. Yes, I totally agree. And there's more than enough land for all of us to have all of those things if it wasn't controlled or owned. And even if any one of us in our groups of BIPOC people in this area, if we got a significant amount of land back, could we afford the taxes on said land? My family encountered that and ended up selling family land at Point Hudson because the taxes had gone up and they couldn't afford to maintain land by the water. So that's another thing. I'm not saying that indigenous people shouldn't have to pay taxes, but I don't think people should have to pay taxes that are beyond their means. Yeah, and I think another aspect of this conversation is just naming that there is amassed wealth among white folks. And I'm not talking about that in terms of like this amorphous out there, there's white folks in our community, there is amassed wealth. And so when you're talking about not being able to afford your taxes, that should not be. There is more than enough to share. And I think it's important that we name why that wealth has been amassed. And that is the inequity in the systems that are put in place to enact violence and erase our people and our ways of being. And that's why reparations is important. It's not saying, oh, one group should have more than another or things like that. It's about balance. There's this idea that we should pull our, you know, I'm using quotes, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And that mentality is really damaging because imagine how easy it is to pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you have shelter, food, access to medical care, all the things you could ever want. Yeah, it's pretty easy to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And to me, that is why land back and housing equity is some of the most potent ways that I see reparations making an impact now, because I believe that everyone should have the opportunity to thrive and live their best lives. And you can only do that when you start from having a safe home and shelter and a wellness in your home base. So what would it be like? What could our community achieve What could we all here achieve and dream and live if we all had stable, permanent housing, a home to root into? I mean, I'm not going to be happy until every black, brown and indigenous person in our community has their own home if they want it. And I think that if we had all those things, we would have a happy community. People would have a happier and better life not just for one group or race of people. That's not a good community. A good balanced community is everybody living together with a home, with food, with, you know, shared everything. Yeah, because how can you be well and show up as an integrated, loving part of your community when you are just treading water every day, just dealing with the generational trauma, the health issues, everything that comes, you know, from centuries of violence? How can you show up when you're, yeah, when you're just dealing with that every day? It's like we were saying earlier, it's a disadvantage that you just start your day out with. And that did not come, that did not fall out of the sky. That is a direct result of 
the violence. And the least that we could do if we care about each other is try to come up with creative ideas and ways to address this. I totally hear and feel that. I feel that I wake up that way every day, and I know many people do. I wake up and keep trying to do different things for my children, for my ancestors who didn't give up. Mm. I have to be that shift and change and try to have my children have the mindset that they belong, that they are part of this land, that this is their community. And I hope they always know that and feel that. But so many Indigenous people really had all of that taken away from them for so long. I mean, my numerous grandparents couldn't keep land because they were Indigenous women. Not only were they women, but they were Indigenous and their husbands had died. So now you get to go live on a reservation. My dad and siblings were taken. Now, working with the historical society and seeing this on paper that indigenous children were taken here and placed, my dad was placed on a farm with brothers. This isn't so far removed. When you take away culture, you burn our houses down, you burn our villages out, you send us someplace else, you move people around, you put them on reservations of land where they can't grow food or have adequate water, housing, any of those things and then expect them to pull themselves up. There's trauma from all of those things that happen to us that doesn't heal overnight, and it's generational trauma. I do what I can for my children and my family, but I lost a lot of family through, I think, just daily stress or alcoholism for having these things happen to them. Relatives that went to residential school, my grandmother having her children taken this is at the historical society. Well, you have too many kids, is what the doctor said. Excuse me, you can't just take someone's children because you feel that they had too many children and your wife has, what was it, five? And they, you know, over five is just too many children for one woman to take care of, let alone an indigenous person. So we're going to take your kids and give them to a farm. That's not okay. And... Imagine the pain of not being able to keep your children. This is my grandmother. This is my father. We're just coming out of all these traumas. You can't heal overnight. And there should be some form of reparations for doing that to a group of people. Taking away children. Taking their land. You didn't have to do that. There was more than enough space. You know? But indigenous people here lived in beautiful water front communities and you're like hey we want the best of the land we don't just want to live everywhere we want to take the waterfront here in Port Townsend it's beautiful but you know when you've got it through displacing the indigenous people and burning them out and taking their babies no somebody should answer for that there should be reparations I didn't get my parents at full 100% because of the traumas they went through. And they're both indigenous. They're both mixed indigenous people from this community who had real struggles because of stuff that white people did to them. The city did to them. The doctor did to them. And they benefited from all of it. We're here and we've always been here. We're not going anywhere. I want to see space, and I want the city to give indigenous people space, whether it's owning land or just saying the space is available to do what you want. As long as we're not hurting the environment, I think they should do it, and I think it should happen all over the Americas. Give indigenous people space back that's off reservation, and let us be. If we're not hurting anything, leave us alone, and that's that's big. I think I could have been a totally different person had all those things not happened to generations of my family. Absolutely. What I would like to see is indigenous villages mixed within our community 
and we all live happy and peaceful lives and we can teach you about plants and food and we can get together for gatherings and we can have potlatches and community space and have people come in and say, hey, this is what the indigenous people of this area that you displaced are like. We're beautiful people. Share in this with us and let us live together. I think that's the best we can get at this point. I can't undo anything that was done to my people, but I can ask for those things back. Let us have ceremony. Let us have song. Let us have land. We can live together peacefully. But it can't be shitty land that nobody wants mm. without water that you can't grow anything. And I'm not just talking about here because this is a wealthy, beautiful area. I'm talking about the land, the fish, the the deer. You know, this is a plentiful land. Mm-hmm. But in other reserves in areas in America, I mean, yes, they have land that they were put onto. That land isn't a thriving land. You know, how are they supposed to do better and better their lives if they can't even get clean drinking water? Mm-hmm. Let's be realistic. You know, you can't take all the good, give only the bad, and expect them to thrive. Black, brown, and indigenous people are brilliant, have yes. brilliant ideas and things inside of them. What would it be like if we could experience that? If people, yeah, if people could experience the healing they needed to be able to dream into those things and bring them to light. And you know how you heal trauma is by having safety, connection, and a sense of belonging. That's what people need to heal from these things that have happened. And so it's up to our community, whoever you are, to be acknowledging and embracing that. Can you say any more about this sort of weird relationship that African descended people have with indigenous people of this land? Because you talked about how indigenous people had people who were enslaved, African mm-hmm. people. But it's also true that the U.S. Army hired, you know, Buffalo soldiers. Right. That was a way for people who were formerly enslaved to actually make a living mm-hmm. outside of the sharecrop system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They could become soldiers and hunt mm-hmm. down indigenous people. Right. So right. this whole historical interaction we have among ourselves is fraught. Very much so, yeah. And you really feel it when you're down there. So my people actually came over the Trail of Tears with their enslavers. And we have the records of that. So yeah, there's so many lines of being displaced and not having a home. It's also a very racist place. Mm -hmm. So another part of my descendancy is that there was a white man named Cooper. He worked for tribal affairs for the nation and he married into the tribe. He became a member of the tribe because he married into the tribe and he was the one who owned our people. And so we were the slaves of this man, Cooper. He had children who were indigenous, but because we're black, it doesn't matter about the mixing of the bloodlines on our end. Because we were black, our rights were taken away as far as being recognized as indigenous at all. And after the Civil War, there were laws that gave tribes the option to absorb the slaves into their tribes or to release them and let them become Americans. Some of the tribes absorbed their slaves into the tribe, but they had the caste system. They did not have the full rights and they did not want there to be intermarrying. So there's all this layers of racism. Of course, people still (laughs) had babies and fell in love. But as far as the law was concerned, for many of those tribes, the, quote, five civilized tribes in Oklahoma, they were not supposed to intermarry. That's the hard history that people are working hard to rectify now. The white people could marry inside of the tribe and then become tribal members, but the black people who may have had more indigenous blood than the white people that were in the tribe weren't considered to be native and were continuously displaced and didn't have any rights. The atrocities are so great 
I think a lot of people want to turn away from that. And there's a lot of guilt and shame in that. And I'm talking about, I mean, I'm sure everyone does that, but specifically I'm talking about white folks wanting to turn away from that, wanting to not look at it. And I get it. It's tough material to think about what happened in our past. But just like any conflict, turning away from it and having shame and guilt wrapped up in it, that's not going to get the conflict moving in any direction. That's not going to address the conflict in any way, you know, if we're just continuing to turn away from it. Specifically shame, because I feel like as black and brown people, we have internalized that shame mm-hmm. to the point where the visions that you guys are talking about, it feels like the walls or the path to achieve those for us is like filled with brambles or so high. Like, how do we among ourselves even start to imagine, just for starters, but then take the next step of enacting village creation? How do we deal with the internalized shame of being indigenous, of being African descended, being from Mexico? Where do we even like start? For me, I feel like you haven't killed me yet. My bloodline is still here. Mm-hmm. I'm here. I have to stand actively present for my ancestors. So in my mind, I'm here. Mm -hmm. You haven't killed us all yet. Mm -hmm. A lot of indigenous people, when a lot became mixed, didn't want to say they were indigenous for a long time because it had all these bad connotations to being indigenous. And I think we need to be proud and say... No, we're here. We're not going anywhere. So I try to stand present as an indigenous woman for my children, Mm -hmm. for my ancestors out of respect for my people. And I really feel that in my core, in my soul, as I am here living the same blood that my grandmother lived, that my people lived. And... You have to be proud of that and carry that. If not, you'll be forgotten. And that's what they want. They want all of the atrocities they did to our peoples, black and indigenous peoples both. They want that forgotten. They don't want to talk about that or think about that. But we're here. And I'm not holding anybody currently alive accountable for things that they're great grandparents did or whatever but there has to be healing and acknowledgement and it's not going to happen if we don't talk about those things and try to make it right in some form or another which we totally have the power to do they have the money they have the land they have the power but we can also have those things and i guess i keep thinking sharing and we can at least try we might not have all the answers but all we can do is try Oceana, to your question, I'm thinking about one way that I work on that internalized shame is getting the colonizer gaze off of me. What are the colonizer narratives? And literally getting them off your body, starting at a body level, you know, like thinking about decolonized beauty standards and and i'm just here to live and be healthy and be well and be wonderful you know i'm really glad you said that because i feel like i spend a lot of my time among us and that's deliberate Mm -hmm. because if i spend any amount of time or too much time among people of European descent, I can feel it <laughs> creeping into my brain, into my mind. Like, But I, instead, you know, it's like this. It's like this conversation we're having here. Like, I, I want to be talking to us because these are the conversations that ignite the 
I guess I feel like the ancestral or the DNA level of like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. we can do this. I remember myself. We can. Yes, and 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 the remembering of myself has to do with how our people have thrived, have made it through. Mm-hmm. You're reminding me of every morning I go to the beach, and I dance for the water, for the creek, for the land. And I know people are looking at me weird when they find me because what you're supposed to do on the beach is walk your dog. (laughs) And don't get me wrong, I'm there with my dog. I'm walking my dog, but I'm also dancing for my ancestors and for the people of this land and the spirits of this land. And that's just me being me. That's what I need to do. That's me being in my habitat for me to go out and be a weirdo. But it's not weird. It's actually not weird, you know. That's the colonizer narrative that is permeating my brain, you know, but it's not weird. It's the most natural, beautiful, human animal thing I could be doing. I agree. I'm an agate lover, but I'll eat seaweed on the beach and Mm. I like to sing. So I'm sure I've gotten some looks. What is she doing? I'm looking for agates or I'm snacking on seaweed or let me be. But we should be sovereign in this land as people. Everybody should. Sovereign is like, for me, all the freedom. Freedom to be who you are. Freedom of the land. Freedom of shared existence on this planet. You know? It's a big thing. And I don't think a lot of people fully understand that. Outside of their own little bubble of what America is or, you know, what they stand for or their political views or standard beauty, all these things. I want to be in connection with the people of this place. And of course, That's one of those things where we run into invisibility, like people are right in front of you and you don't even recognize who they are. This is a very white place. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of my friends are white. And I would ask them, you know, what's what's up with the indigenous culture? Like, where are the people? What's up? And there was a lot of, oh, they don't want you to be bothering them, basically. Like, they're, they're not friendly. And I just, you know, I just dismissed it and I said, well, okay, whatever. I don't care because if I'm in a place, (laughs) I want to introduce myself properly to the people of this place. (laughs) If I'm in a place, I want to learn the language of that place. I want to be respectful because that's just what you do when you go somewhere. (laughs) If you go to someone's house, (laughs) you don't just walk in there and act like you own the place. Like you introduce yourself. And yeah, of course, like nothing could be more opposite. I've been welcomed. The tribes around here, the culture is generosity and hospitality and friendliness. And so I think that part of the connection between Indigenous Americans and African Americans is the freshness of colonization. I think that's really important because all the peoples around the world have now basically been colonized. The people of Europe have colonized for such a long time compared to the African Americans and the indigenous Americans. Over the hundreds of years, people just forget things that are very human. And so then they're just very dismissive and dehumanizing to the indigenous people, the wisdoms that the indigenous people hold. And so I think that that's the benefit of African Americans and Indigenous Americans being around each other because they understand things in a way that some of the other people have forgotten. Mm -hmm. And this is why I also think it's also so important for people of European descent that have been colonized for a long time to recognize how important it is to be around Indigenous and African-American people in a way that honors and recognizes their way of being as something that they need to learn. We have a lot to teach these people who have just had so many generations of being colonized that they don't remember things anymore that are obvious to the rest of us. 
So normally to wrap up these episodes, I like to ask our interviewees <laughs> what are their dreams and goals, maybe in their own personal life or even for our broader PGM community here in Port Townsend. Well, I always say I'm not happy until we got 38 longhouses returned to the shore. I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love that, and I want that and more. The minimum of just getting what was forcibly taken away. You know, they say that tribes are sovereign, but the government is still in control of so much things. I want complete sovereignty. Let us run free and wild everywhere, and I want longhouses, and I want community space. That's my vision. I think it's going to be good for everybody not just for my people or my own children, but I want that all over the continent for all the indigenous people that were displaced, rematriated. Bring it back. It was beautiful. There's nothing wrong with our societies, our structures. We had beautiful societies. We can have that again, and we can do that, and I want to see that everywhere. I think that's going to be really healing for the planet. I don't think the path we're on with money and corporations and all these things aren't beneficial to the planet or to the people. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that with all the fires, with the inequality, the housing market. We're seeing it everywhere. We're not in balance. I want to see balance, and we're going to get that balance by opening up spaces to everybody and living together in unity in these spaces that aren't being used. There's more than enough land and space. I'm doing what I can, however I can, in my own life and with my children, but through bringing back traditional ways, foods, teaching our children languages, that were lost or not spoken for so long is really important. You have to speak those words in that language again. Mm-hmm. You're not silencing us. You're not whitewashing us. Mm-hmm. Or not me anyways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm resisting it. And I hope that most people will. We have to be not afraid to try things. You just got to try. And I think that's what I love to to tell people is like, if you have an idea, just you can do it. (laughs) You don't have to wait for anyone to tell you. And that's exactly how J-Carf started. I was just sick in bed and was like, I think this could work. I think I could just go out there and start talking to people. And then boom, four years later. I'm thankful for you. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Me too. Giving me the strength to even realize that I could do that. Because for some reason, my mind, I was like, somebody else will make it happen or the tribe or somebody will do it. It just gave me the strength to realize, just do it. Just try. Yeah. It is the colonizer narrative to separate us and to say that there is difference. There is no difference. We come from separate cultures, but... It's a total construct that there are these differences and they want us to believe that we're different so that we will be in conflict with each other. And we're not in conflict with each other. There's a long history specifically of pitting black folks and indigenous folks against each other. And I just want to acknowledge that that's not necessarily always the case. Mm -hmm. We don't have to live that narrative. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I do want to acknowledge, of course, that there is a difference in how these perceived separate groups are treated in America. I just want to name that anti-blackness is pervasive in every single thing. And, you know, I grew up seeing anti-blackness in Native communities. And so I just want to note that we're coming to it with that understanding. And I don't want to dismiss that differentiation there because it's important to note Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to where we started. Like, what is this thing about money? I mean, these are all just made-up things. Just like the color thing is a made-up construct. All these things are constructs. I just really am grooving on this idea of why don't we just take ourselves out of the plantation, off the reservation, and rematriate, reclaim, take up space in the places that we are and where we are right now 
is in Jefferson County. We're in Port Townsend. What do you imagine that could look like, even as a first step? Taking over Kai Tai Lagoon area. Oh, go there, yeah. And just putting tiny homes in and starting up our own community village, something like that. I've thought about it in an indigenous way, but I think maybe it should be a way for all of us to have a great community and just remove ourselves from the equation. Mm. This is not what we want to be or see. This isn't good for my mental health. I need to be in a community where we appreciate each other and love each other and our differences and share and be more like equals. I don't want to live in a community where we're being viewed as less than. I want to live in a community where I can talk with you. We can sit and have these conversations. We can share food around a table. We can share food from our gardens and live in a happy, healthy community space where I don't have to go to the store and feel less than. Sharing of wealth in our small communities will probably be so much greater than being separate and struggling in a wealthy community alone as a not-white person. Huh. That's big. I would love to see a community somewhere. Most of the natives, when they got burnt out downtown, went and made like a makeshift tent village in Kai Tai Lagoon. So I have my eyes set on, <laughs> set on that the place, too. <laughs> yeah, I think especially in these times where we're also dealing with the weight of a global pandemic, I think it starts with the basics of co-regulation and communing together. Being together, eating together, singing together, that's where I see it starting. Mm -hmm. So my biggest goal is I want to live in a world where land back means the land is returned to itself and we don't have the constructs of land ownership we don't have prisons. <laughs> we don't have Starlink. <laughs> I can't believe I'm living in a time where I could look up in the sky and I don't know if I'm looking at a star or not. That is disturbing <laughs> to me. So these are my big, these are my biggest goals. To get a little smaller, I would love to see my loved ones and my friends and community thriving. I would like to see everyone own their own home space if we're yeah if we're not abolishing capitalism yet i would like to see i would like to see folks having that autonomy and having that baseline to live their best lives and yeah that includes for me i want to wake up every day knowing that i have a stable home i want to own my own home and be able to move through the world with that safety and security, knowing that I'm always going to have a place to come back to and a place that I can be well. And I, I want that for all my loved ones and all my kin. I love that. I think this is like the first time we've asked this question where I feel like answering it too. I feel like through all these conversations, and this is like our last one, I feel even more strongly now than I did before, like, we need to take over Katai Lagoon. I mean, that's just like a <laughs> duh now for me. I just, I really feel so strongly about us creating space for ourselves where we get to unfurl and breathe and imagine and bring all our brilliance and talent to our own thriving I still feel even more strongly now like anybody should want that because our thriving is necessarily going to be your thriving. It's not like we live separately. We're all in the same ecosystem. We're all made of the same stardust. Having us not thriving is not in your best interest. It's certainly not in ours. So... I feel inspired to really lean into the cultivation of space for us and the love and the care that's just bubbling up even in this conversation in a space like that is just inspiration, with more inspiration. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Thank you, you for this. I can't tell you what an honor it is for you guys to want to hear my voice. And I'm so excited to be around you people who are doing this sort of thing in this community. It's just, it's awesome. I feel really proud. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, my heart is full. What an incredible conversation about how a people who have ties to land so ancient come to reclaim their place in it and reclaim their relationships to all the beings and the people here in present time and what that can mean for any one of us to go back and reclaim our ties to land in such a way that we can be present on the lands that we are in good ways. I was just so uplifted by where this conversation ended in a field of hope for us, of generating true community. And here I want to acknowledge the 11th hour contribution of music to this very special episode from Chiokten, who is a member of the Sanach people of Vancouver Island. He is a wisdom keeper of Coast Salish ways of educating and governing pertaining to co-creating paradise from the time of the animal people to before settler colonial contact. He is also a frontline warrior and has spent much time at many indigenous-led occupations, most recently the Fairy Creek. He's the founder of Protectors of the Salish Sea, an indigenous-led group that has occupied the Washington State Capitol no less than three times to help create a future for our wild salmon, our whales, the circle of life, and all children. We are so honored to have the generous contribution of his gorgeous flute music in this episode. I invite you to take a look at the show notes so you can find out more information about him and to support the protectors of the Salish Sea. appreciate you for listening to this episode of Talk and Story. Music is provided with permission by Ben Wilson and Camilla J. Talk and Story is a project of well-organized and has enjoyed the support of the Port Townsend Arts Commission, Jefferson Community Foundation, Finn River Farm and Cidery, and the Community Equity Initiative, as well as private, in-kind, and monetary donations. If you'd like to support us, please go to well-organized.org to make a donation to the Talk and Story podcast. That's well-organized.org. Thank you.